Something has changed in the habits of Americans. Something has changed quite dramatically. In the year 1960, more than 63% of Americans attended church on a regular basis. Now, over the last several decades, especially over the last several years, that number has declined precipitously. For example, just between the years 2019 and 2021, the number of Americans who attend church at least once or twice per month has declined from 34% of the population to 28%, which may not sound dramatic when you measure it in percentage points, but if you translate that to actual numbers of people, that means that 20 million people have stopped attending church over a period of a couple of years. Not that they've all rejected Christianity. Many of these 20 million people continue to identify as Christian. They simply no longer go to church. In other words, they consider themselves Christian, but they no longer feel the need to participate in public worship. But Christians are supposed to gather for worship, aren't we? It would certainly seem that way. In both the Old and New Testament, the Bible talks regularly about the public worship of God's people. And throughout Christian history, Christians have insisted on gathering together for worship, even when such gatherings have had to take place under threat of violence or imprisonment. They've continued to gather. And if that weren't enough, Anglican Christians, we've, we've written down in our governing documents what is expected of all members of our church, the so-called duties of the laity. And the very first duty on that list, the number one expectation of every Christian is to worship God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit every Lord's Day in a church unless reasonably prevented. But apparently not all Christians are aware of this duty, or at least not all are convinced that worship, especially public worship, is an essential part of their spiritual life. And that's why chapter 11 of Richard Foster's book on the discipline of worship, it's why it's so important for us today. Because in this chapter, Foster, he reminds us why worship is it's not optional for those who call ourselves Christian. So let's talk about this chapter then. First, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about worship? Now, Foster doesn't give a specific definition, but he does make some very insightful observations. Like what he says on page 158, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. In the ancient world, pagans would often make sacrifices and, and offer public worship to deities as a way to win their favor or maybe to placate their anger or gain their assistance. But Christian worship isn't like that. It's not something we do to gain the favor or assistance of God. It's our natural, it's our proper response to the love that God has already shown us. It's a celebration of who God is and what he has done. To quote Foster again, we worship the Lord not only because of who he is, but also because of what he has done. We praise God for who he is, and we thank him for what he has done. That's a pattern that you see all throughout the Bible. After God rescues Noah and his family from the flood, what does Noah do? He builds an altar and he worships God. What about when God liberates Israel from slavery? 
when he rescues them from the Egyptian army. You remember what they do? They sing. Moses and all the Israelites, they join together and they sing a song of praise, celebrating who God is and what he has done for them. Again, this is a, it's a pattern that repeats itself again and again, all throughout the Bible. It's how, it, this is what God's people do. It's how they respond to God's love with worship. In fact, Foster says that worship isn't just a duty of Christians. It is our primary duty, our primary calling. Before even our obligation to serve God comes our obligation to worship him. And sometimes we get that backwards. Sometimes we, we think that what's most important is, is what we do, our service of God. But Foster says that service must flow out of worship. And actually that substituting service for worship is in fact a form of idolatry. Now, Richard Foster in this chapter, he never references the Scottish theologian James Torrance. But as I was reading this chapter, I was reminded of something that Torrance once said about worship. He said that all of creation was made for the purpose of giving glory to God. That's very clear in the Bible. And that unknowingly, this is exactly what creation does. Without knowing it, every sparrow, every lily of the field, every galaxy of the universe in its vast array, it all proclaims the glory of God. But human beings are special, special because we were made in God's image. We were made in all of creation with the unique capacity that we are the creatures who can contemplate the beauty and glory of what God does and then use words to celebrate it. God made men and women in his own image to be the priests of creation and to express on behalf of all creatures the praise of God so that through human lips the heavens might declare the glory of God. That's one of the reasons that public gathered worship is so important. At one point, Foster, he, he makes what I think is a very interesting point. He says that in contrast to the religions of the East, the Christian faith has strongly emphasized corporate worship. And one of the reasons for this, he says, is because Christians exist. We're, we're not just a bunch of individuals, but we exist as a body. That's what Paul says in the New Testament a community of people who have all been joined together and made dependent on each other. So when we worship, we do it as a gathered community, inspiring one another with our praises. But another reason for that is because worship is not just a private matter of the heart. Worship by its very nature is a public event. It's celebrating who God is, giving thanks for what he's done in front of others. It's meant to be seen and heard. Well, okay, enough about what worship is and why we do it. What Richard Foster is talking about is worship as a habit, a spiritual discipline. So how do we cultivate this discipline? How do we become better worshipers? Now, one of the ways that Foster answers this question is by calling our attention to what he calls the divinely appointed avenues into worship. And the first of these, the first way that we are drawn into worship is actually through the, the stopping and stilling of our own activity. 
Foster quotes that verse from Habakkuk chapter 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In order to enter into worship properly, Foster says we need to learn how to, to carry this attitude throughout our day, to regularly and frequently still ourselves before the Lord, to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Following that, another avenue into worship is praise. And singing is one of the primary ways that we are led into praise. You may not particularly enjoy singing, but as Foster points out, no less than 41 psalms command us to sing unto the Lord. Praise and the singing that often accompanies it is an essential component of worship. But singing isn't the only bodily activity we do in worship. As Foster observes, when the Bible talks about worship, it often uses words that refer to very specific bodily actions, from standing and kneeling and raising your hands to, to laying on the ground prostrate. Of course, in modern churches, we often regard these different, these different bodily postures and these gestures, we, we tend to think of them as a matter of preference, whatever works for you. But maybe that's not the right way to think about it. What we must see, Foster says, is that the real question in worship is not what will meet my need. The real question is what kind of worship does God call for? Now, after talking about some of these divinely appointed avenues into worship, stilling ourselves, praising, singing, Foster then goes on to list seven steps into worship, as he calls it these practical suggestions he gives for how to better prepare yourself for and how to better enter into worship. Now, all seven of them are worth discussing, but I want to just highlight a couple. And the first one he mentions is learning to practice the presence of God on a daily basis. If Sunday is the only day you engage in worship, if adoration and praise and thanksgiving. If those play no part of your life throughout the week, then worship will always feel like something strange and unrelated, something disconnected to the rest of your life. So the first thing that all of us need to work on is incorporating worship, awareness of God, of who he is, celebrating him into our daily experience. You don't need to go around singing, but practice giving thanks. Practice voicing praise to God as you go about your day. The second Foster says, we need to have a willingness to be gathered with others for worship. That is, as an individual, I must learn to let go of my agenda, of my concern, of my being blessed, of my hearing the word of God. The language of the gathered fellowship is not I, but we. I think that's one of the most difficult things for a lot of Christians today. And I, I would include myself in that. I've noticed that I often approach worship with interest in what it's doing for me. Am I being inspired? Do the songs that we're singing, do they appeal to me? And what am I getting out of this service? Now, those questions aren't necessarily bad, but I think they misconstrue what public worship is. They make it about me rather than God. And they make me forget that worship is 
Worship is something meant to be for the whole gathered church. It's not just my own private experience. So in recent years, I've tried to change my thinking. Now, whenever I'm in worship and we begin to sing a song that, that I find particularly uninspiring, I've tried to make it a habit to look around and find others who seem to be moved by that song. And then I try to remind myself that I'm not just here for me. I'm here to join them in worship. Now, Foster concludes his discussion of worship by talking about what he calls the fruits of worship. What what is it supposed to produce in our lives, which is, for him, obedience to God? Just as worship, he says, begins in holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. If worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. And one of the things I've always appreciated about Anglican worship is how we end our services. At at the very end, after we've prayed and praised and sung, after we've confessed our sins and celebrated who God is, thanked Him for what He's done, we end with a prayer of thanksgiving that includes this line, And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. Every week we come into the presence of the Lord for worship. And every week we are sent out of worship to love and serve him as faithful witnesses. Because that is what we were created for. And because a God like ours deserves nothing less. Mm-hmm.